When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Camilla Nord is an award-winning neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge, pioneering a new understanding of mental health. And she's the author of a new book on that subject called The Balanced Brain. Camilla is going to be joining us at our How To Change Your Life Festival in January, along with a whole host of previous podcast guests you can pick up an early bird ticket on our website. Here's her conversation from a few weeks back with Hannah McInnes. There are a lot of things. I I don't know how your process went in choosing your title, but there are a lot of things you could have called this book. And I wonder why you chose that. Explain the the concept, the balanced brain as a title. It, It was quite a deliberate choice because my book is not about mental illness, my book is about the experience of having mental health, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And the fact that all for all of us, our experience of mental health is created via these ongoing processes, which I describe as kind of like homeostasis in the body. These processes trying to restore balance in different senses, whether that's to do with learning what's good or bad in the world or what's painful, what's pleasurable. It's this kind of series of coupled processes that can sometimes go awry, leading to poor mental health, but equally, in many cases, through a variety of treatments and interventions, lead to better mental health. Okay, so, I mean, there are a lot of books, and that's a good thing, on this subject, broadly speaking. This, to me, felt very different. I think you challenge quite a lot of things, uh, a lot of narratives that are perhaps ingrained. And I wonder if that was... A conscious attempt from you to sort of do something different and perhaps react against certain things? Well, I'm glad so many people are talking about mental health. It's a critical topic. Everyone you know, either they or someone they're close to, has experienced a mental health condition. So it really is a kind of vital topic. But I think previous discussions have sometimes been led astray um, in different ways. And perhaps the biggest way in the way that my book is really fighting against is the idea that there is a single silver bullet that will help anyone's mental health. Whether that's a new drug or other kind of more biological treatment, or whether that's even something seemingly innocuous like exercise or a probiotic diet, It's my conviction that there will never be a single solution for mental health because of the complexity of mental health and mental health problems. And I go through my, in my book, I really try to dive deep into the biology that leads to our experience of, of well-being, of feeling less well, and how each of these different routes can be targeted by different treatments that may be successful in different people. That's the point that comes up all the way through, that there is absolutely no one size fits all, that everybody is different. But then writing this book, who were you writing for, in a sense? Was that to anyone? Is this book for anyone, whether you think you're suffering with mental health issues or whether you're not? Is this something that you feel everyone should read? I think everyone who's ever thought about their own mental health, which must be most people, probably should know the message that there isn't a kind of individual solution. It's not just people with mental health conditions who want to improve their mental health. It really is most people. And so I think for each of us, an understanding of the kind of exciting perspective things that could help our mental health, but also a kind of below that superficial understanding, a deeper understanding of why it might or might not work for you is what I hoped would come out of this book. I I hope as well that it kind of gives people 
you know, perhaps people who've tried something in the past and it hasn't worked for them. And that's really challenging. I hope that this book broadens their perspective about what might be possible and the fact that, you know, one thing not working doesn't mean another thing won't work necessarily. And I think it absolutely does that. And you've packed so much in, in terms of possible treatments, possible ways forward. And I certainly want to come to that in a moment. But where you begin is with natural highs, pleasure, pain and the brain and the extraordinary power of the brain and the mind, which comes out all the way through the book. Here you talk about chronic pain and you say that, that, that all pain and chronic pain can be, and particularly important in inverted commas, all in your head. Like people might read that straight away and go, you know, how dare she? <laughs> how dare she say that my pain that I feel so strongly and physically could be all in my head? So I wonder if you could explain that, but also perhaps most importantly, how knowing that can help or can it? Maybe it's a little bit surprising to start a book about mental health with chronic pain. Many people don't even think of chronic pain as a mental health condition. But in fact, I've chosen pain as the first example that I really dive deep into because I think it disrupts your expectations about what is physical and what is mental, what is biological and what is psychological. These artificial divisions that I really try to, that I try to break in writing my book. I know that the experience of pain is body-based. So I'm someone who's experienced chronic pain. Everyone, almost everyone, has experienced some type of pain. But that doesn't mean that that's the reality. In fact, all of our pain is filtered through mechanisms in our brain. But in particular, chronic pain can in some cases even be largely driven by things going on in the brain, even if where you feel it is on the periphery in your hand, in your foot. Um, it might be centrally driven even when it's not, it's often augmented, it can be enhanced, it can be suppressed by processes that are happening in your brain. You know this because this is very important. If you want to survive and something painful happens to you, you need to be able to keep going to escape a predator. So your brain is able to override those painful signals. That's great, but it can also enhance them. And so how do you think it can help I mean, in one sense, it really helps just knowing that, I think, for lots of people. It might not help others, but how do you think it can help people knowing the strength of the brain when it comes to pain? Well, I hope it helps kind of multiple camps of people. The first is sort of from an experiential perspective. I think it can be extremely useful to know that some of your pain might originate from processes you, you think of as all in your mind. Of course, I don't really think anything is all in the mind. I think it's in the brain. But then a second thing that I hope happens from this is that maybe it will diversify what treatments someone seeks when they experience chronic pain. For some people, not everyone, chronic pain can be very successfully treated with psychological therapy. That doesn't mean that it's not real. That just means it's another route a really interesting and exciting route via the brain that can reduce chronic pain. And it also works the other way around in the sense that uh, something that you might think of as being psychological in the mind can be actually treated by something that you would think of as being a physical treatment. Yes, exactly. So I think the other way around can occur sometimes when people have experienced, say, a trauma or something clearly kind of social or situational and they think well how could this possibly be treated with something as you know dull and biological as a drug or something as kind of generic as exercise but in fact those are there's two examples of physical treatments that can be extremely effective for mental distress um, for different reasons. Oh, it's fascinating. And um, you come to that later in the book. Also, you talk in this chapter about, um, as I was saying, natural highs, pleasure, pain in the brain. Something that I found really interesting is just the importance. And it may seem simple, but it's so important to remind us scientifically how you do of pleasure. And I thought the sort of advantages you talk about of being a little bit of a hedonist or hedonist and also the idea that austerity isn't the only route, because I think we are... And perhaps some people might be more inclined to take this on than others. But we are often sort of told that the things we should do to improve our mental health 
aren't things that necessarily bring us or everyone that much pleasure. So it might be don't eat this, don't don't do that, get up every morning at five and run around the block. And I thought that the message I got from that chapter, as someone who might be inclined to do those things or be stricter, is that don't forget you were saying to us how important those small pleasures are for mental health. And I wonder if you feel like society sometimes forgets that. Yes, I do. I think people give themselves a really hard time, which can be such a vicious cycle when it comes to mental health. People start to blame themselves for their own poor mental health. They think, oh, you know, if only I was someone who did X, Y, or Z, I would feel better. Or I've been pushing myself so hard. I've been eating this and making sure I'm in bed at a certain time and making sure I wake up at a certain time. And yet I still don't feel any better. And I think my book hopefully takes the blame away. I think there are many processes that can support good mental health and it doesn't have to come from a place of depriving yourself. It doesn't have to come from a place of austerity, as you say. I think it can and often does come from a place of joy. Austerity was your words. I was quoting you. <laughs> but I suppose, and you, you question this yourself, you can't tell someone who is suffering from serious mental health problems, you know, add more pleasure, have some chocolate, you know, smell the flowers, because that will feel offensive to many people, because it won't help. Yeah, not only, um, not only is it offensive, it's also, you know, totally counterproductive, because in many mental health conditions, and, and depression is one of them, a very common symptom is a lack of pleasure, a lack of anticipating pleasurable things, a lack of desire for pleasurable activities, things like eating or socializing with friends that used to be really enjoyable, to many people with depression are no longer enjoyable. So those very roots are inaccessible. And the other thing that you sort of treat with caution, again, it's refreshing because you're questioning something that a lot of people are talking about at the moment is the microbiome and its role in mental health. And this is, I should say, in the first half of the book, these are just the ways in which the brain affects your mental health and the body. And you're cautious about the role of the gut. I know that there's lots and lots out there about how great it can be how it sometimes people feel like it's a real something that will solve their mental health problems if they take probiotics and eat fermented foods but I was just fascinated to hear you say reliable studies so far for a reason you could explain aren't convincing you as a scientist yes I mean not yet I'll tell you that I would like the microbiome story to be true. It's really exciting. And I just, from a personal curiosity level, find it totally captivating. I'm, I'm really into it. Um, and I've been following it for many years, uh, sometimes more closely than others in, in relation to my own science. But the story is strongest in animal research which differs in many, many ways from the human conditions of the microbiome. So what I believe from animal research is that under the right conditions, the microbiome can influence mental health-like behaviours. But those conditions are so stringent in animal studies. You control the environment, you often control the genes. And actually, in the kind of mess of humans, often the same predictions don't bear out. Now, perhaps there will be some kind of definitive studies in the coming years that will make the story a lot stronger. But because of how exciting it is, I think people have run with it a little bit before its time. And I'll give you an example. So one uh, really interesting idea is that if you change the microbiome with an intervention like antibiotics, that might have knock-on effects on your mental health. This is one of the best ways of testing it because it's essentially a way of disrupting the microbiome and then you test it. So not just a correlation, which could be caused by differences in where you live, differences in your diet, so many other things. So you don't want to just show a difference in the microbiome between, say, people with better and worse mental health. You want to show a cause. So I like the studies in that respect. You can use antibiotics, you can disrupt the microbiome. But what has often been shown is that in people who've been on antibiotics a lot in development, this is a really big study that's been done on it, um, they have different microbiomes and, and kind of worse anxiety-like behaviors than people who haven't been on antibiotics a lot in childhood. And unfortunately, that 
doesn't provide any more certainty because it's a very sort of special population of people who have to be prescribed antibiotics frequently in development. They're not really matched with people who haven't been. And so in human studies, there are always these little variables that just haven't quite been accounted for and might be, you know, maybe giving a lot of the power to the microbiome when actually it's driven by other things, at least, you know, to some degree. So you feel like it's something to watch and be hopeful about. And certainly if you like eating those sorts of foods and they work for you, do it. But it's not a magic bullet. Yes, I think it's not a magic bullet. And I also think we don't quite understand how it works. So even if the animal studies are right, my curiosity is is right and things like that, actually what we would need to understand is what bits of the microbiome, when would you need to intervene, what would you need to do, all of these big questions that have not yet been answered. It's interesting because you talk about the experiments being done on uh, rodents and not humans, but I felt that a great many of the experiments that you described, they are all done on rats and mice. Does that make a lot still up for discussion? Yes, I, I am. I think animal research can be incredibly informative and can be fundamental to our understanding of conditions and how to treat them. But we always need to kind of couch that with, with caution so that we can discover something with animals and then wait for converging research from humans. There are things that we can test and explore in animals that we cannot in humans. And that's, you know, really rich scientific possibility. But we also need to know what's going on in humans in order to make any kind of inference about human behavior, mental health, and so on. I think people um, listening will probably be thinking what I think as you read your book, which is just a question more uh, what comes out, you know, as a big headline in the newspaper or as a program, it's grabbed on by the media. And you do talk about that in the book. And it's why the book is so useful, because it's a much more nuanced and balanced approach. But um, the balance really stretches all the way through to that. And also people might be thinking, OK, well, what, what foods should I eat then? Rest assured, I will come to that part uh, in a moment. But I just want to and move as you do into your second part, which is about the ways in which you can enhance mental health um, via the brain. And there are so many, and I, you know, I, the time will go too quickly, but people can read the book to find more. But you talk about the power of placebos, which I just found absolutely astounding. Again, one of the wows in the book was next to an experiment that you describe in which something as concrete as surgery could be subject to the placebo effect. Knee surgery, you described, that improved uh, a tear in people's knees just as much as act actual sur surgery. So I wonder if you could describe to us how they work and, again, how they can help. Because obviously not every, you know, individual people, how, how do placebos fit into the way in which we can enhance mental health? Yeah, placebos get a really bad reputation, don't they? You want to take... A medication that's better than placebo. Of course you do. That's the point of any clinical trial is to show that a treatment is better than placebo. And it can be incredibly challenging, a topic I get into a little bit later in the book when I talk about psychedelics, but also psychological therapy, both of which um, are very challenging when it comes to finding a good placebo. But actually, from your individual perspective, when you take a medication or take a, you know, do a session of psychological therapy or any other intervention, you don't really mind how you get better as long as you get better. People like me mind, scientists mind, but from an individual perspective, you don't have to know what the root is. And so I think for that reason, actually knowing about placebos and just how powerful they are can be really informative for your own kind of personal uh, experience of getting better or not um, after an intervention. It might maybe give you some doubt if something's worked for you, but you're not really sure how, or you haven't, you've read maybe it's not quite so robust, but how could it work for me? Well, placebo is the answer. It might also maybe make you think twice about side effects that you've experienced, because I talk a little bit about the kind of inverse of the placebo effect called the nocebo effect. In both cases, placebo and nocebo, this is an example of where your expectations, often very deep knowledge about the world that you're not thinking about consciously, affect the outcomes of a treatment. So for example, expectations that taking a drug will make you feel better, you've 
learned that your whole life. You believe it very strongly. And I don't mean actively believe, like think about it all the time. I mean, it's just something you know about the world. Often you take medication and then you get better. As a result, every time you take a medication, your own personal effect of that medication is boosted by that placebo effect. So that's how I think of placebos as being a boost for treatments that we use. It's a challenge for scientists, but it's a good thing for patients. It's a boost in certain scenarios. I mean, you describe homeopathy. That's where um, you say that it's purely placebo. And even people who don't even believe in homeopathy somehow have this innate belief in it that they don't know they have, and that's how it works. But what about something like antidepressants? I mean, there's been a lot of misinformation that you describe about how uh, antidepressants work, or there's been a lot of sort of confusion and the idea that it's purely regarding serotonin. Now, I don't think that's quite the truth or quite to be the, the case. But are antidepressants a mixture of what you're talking about, a placebo and something else, and that's how they work? Do you recommend them for patients suffering? Antidepressants are a mixture of active ingredients and placebos because all medications are. So antidepressants absolutely benefit from the placebo effect, but the antidepressants that we use today have come out as better than placebo in many, many, many robust trials. So I do think that the evidence suggests that they, of course, come with a big placebo effect, but they also have an effect on top of that, that can be very helpful for some people's mental health. And I say some people's mental health because I think this is where some of the challenges about antidepressants originate. I think they originate in the idea that everyone's depression, say, comes from the same biological problem, which a couple decades ago was described as a a difference in serotonin processing, a particular chemical in the brain that many antidepressants target. Um, Now, for over a decade, we've known that's not necessarily the case. There are disruptions in serotonin processing in some people with depression, but they're complicated. It's often not enough, doesn't explain everyone's, um, and it's also, you know, probably not the single thing that is responsible for the effect of antidepressants. The, The idea that they are correcting a deficit is a much too simplistic explanation, um, and isn't one that is used in kind of neuroscience textbooks today. Um, Instead, there are a few different explanations, and I really put forward one that I think solves a lot of the problems uh, with our understanding of antidepressants, which is the idea that antidepressants shift your cognitive bias. And this is true in everyone. So if you were to take a single dose of antidepressants, you would go from interpreting a, a negative or even neutral piece of information, say a sentence or a face that looks mildly mildly neutral, mildly negative, as a bit more positive. So it shifts this kind of very low level information, even perceptual processing that we're doing. And over time, these shifts in perception add up to being, to becoming a much grander change in your beliefs about the world, in your mood. And that's why antidepressants take a few weeks to work. I mean, when you say that, you can't help thinking, well, in this very world of opinion and bias, antidepressants should be, you know, could change something like that, sort of almost like the the, the binary views that everybody has. The way you describe antidepressants is something to think of in that context. Yeah, I, w- I hope so. So this, this theory of antidepressants, um, which was created... Mm, kind of by a few different labs, but in particular, I talk about a a professor at Oxford called Catherine Harmer, who's been a a major, who's played a major role in the discovery of these actions of antidepressants. And what, what she and many of us believe about the evidence here is that it moves us beyond antidepressants are an entirely biological phenomenon operating on some biological problem in depression versus depression is some psychological phenomenon that could never be treated with something as, you know, tiny and biological as a serotonin modifier towards a kind of unified theory 
that addresses both the psychological component of depression with the pharmacological, biological actions of an antidepressant. And that's what I think is so useful. This is not a theory in one camp or the other. It's an explanation of how a biological agent has effects on the very cognitive processes that are essential to maintaining our emotional and mental well-being. One of the questions you ask is how to know if antidepressants work for me or which ones to take. And people might be wondering that about themselves or their children or their parents. Uh, how do you know if it's right for you? And we'll move on to the other things that you can consider both with antidepressants or instead of. But if you're first considering whether to take them, and I think people have worries about them, how do you know? Yeah, I, I sympathize very much with this worry. And I think that with every medication, it shouldn't really be down to the patient to decide, you know, to, to kind of be faced with this really difficult decision. They should be guided by their clinician. And I very much hope that anyone making that decision has a GP or has another kind of medical professional they can talk about this with. Because at the end of the day, it is a, it's a decision that will involve many factors, including do they have access to other possible treatments? Have they tried antidepressants before? Have they worked or not worked? Which type have they tried? What are their exact set of symptoms? I mean, an immensely kind of complex set of things. And even then, it will only lead to a kind of suggestion of what might be the right next step. Now, I think in, in sort of my ideal world, if I were making a decision to take antidepressants, what I would really like is some kind of estimate, like a statistical estimate of what would be my best shot, if a drug, which drug, and so on. We don't have that right now, but I know labs around the world that are working on that kind of personalized algorithm to tell you which treatment would be best for you. It's really interesting. You talk about other drugs, and I'm sure many people have questions about this. You talk about alcohol, you talk about the whole selection of drugs that are suggested these days or have been conventionally thought of as ways to ease stress or anxiety. But I'm going to ask you about psychedelics because there's a lot, again, you know, a lot of discussion around psychedelics. And you you say that there's no harmful, I think I've got this right, no harmful effects really of psychedelics. Lots of research suggesting multiple benefits for their mental health. I've, I've read endless articles now, I think, about particularly um, psilocybin. Are you convinced of their efficacy? Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say there are no harmful effects. I cite a really useful study about kind of societal and individual harms relative to other drugs. And relative to other recreational drugs, psilocybin is a very safe drug. So if you think about it relatively, it does very well compared to something even like alcohol. Um, but having said that, that doesn't mean that there aren't personal risks, risks of personal harms, which is something I actually think has been somewhat overlooked by the discussion around psilocybin treatments for mental health conditions. So people are excited by new treatment. Of course they are. And I think, you know, there, there are trials to suggest that perhaps we should be excited. Perhaps it is a new type of drug that we could add to our mental health arsenal of treatments in the future. However, I also think that because of the nature of this drug, people have been so excited that they've maybe overlooked two problems. And one problem is the problem that for some people, it is absolutely not the right treatment. And we need better work to figure out who those people are and to ensure targeted treatment efforts do not go towards patients who will end up with very challenging side effects, um, very difficult adverse events during the experience. So this is a kind of anecdotal thing because I don't think it's been investigated quite enough, but there are patients who've been in various psilocybin trials who've later spoken up about adverse effects um, of the drug. So I think even if it's a small minority, it's a minority that's very important to investigate. And actually, I don't really know if it's a small minority because it needs to be investigated more robustly. And then the second thing that I would really Really like to see more work on is a kind of fairer trial of psychedelic drugs. So at the moment, most trials happening of psychedelic drugs, you know it when you're on it. It's too difficult to blind. It really is challenging. But I actually think that decoupling a placebo effect, what's happening when you anticipate uh, the effects of a psychedelic drug from the actual 
biological kind of additional effects of those psychedelics, I think that's really, really important and more work needs to be done in that space. I mean, I don't want you to force you into saying anything controversial, but it's incredibly frustrating to, to read you say that it's incredibly difficult to get research licenses to do research into psychedelics and they desperately need more study, as you've just said. And if they are possibly a, an extraordinary cure and they can help lots of people, why is there a reluctance and not more going into that funding from governments into those things? I, I actually think this is something that's changing um, as we speak. So there are many more labs researching psychedelics now than there ever have been in the past. When I started work kind of in mental health neuroscience, which was over 10 years ago, it was so rare to see research like this, to see labs investigating psychedelics. And today it's much, much more common. So I think there have been many moves in the right direction. Um, but I also think that in order to acquire funding and to kind of sustain funding in this area, we as scientists have a responsibility to do the best and most robust science we can with these substances, which might mean different sorts of labs doing investigations. It might mean more publishing of null results, which means results where you don't find an effect um, you know, I, there isn't sort of one solution, but I do think that kind of as investment increases in this area, we need to be aware and cautious that it's not just investment in kind of translating it to the public. We also need to be doing the basic science, the fundamental work to say, does it work? Who does it work in? What should we look out for? Just like with other treatments, we shouldn't be treating it any differently than a new kind of antidepressant drug. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go um, past some of the other drugs because there's so much more to talk about. And I want to talk to you about um, various other sorts of treatment. Again, I'm sure lots of people um, know people considering these might be considering them as yourself. And you write so helpfully about the psychotherapy changing the brain. And in terms of CBT, which you say uh, reigns supreme as a type of psychological therapy. So, again, you've helped us so much um, in describing who benefits from certain treatments. Perhaps you could explain CBT and the behaviorism and cognitivism um, and how you know if CBT is for you. Is it for everybody? Well, probably if you've been to a therapist or various therapists, you've probably experienced some aspects of CBT yourself, even if that wasn't what it was called, even if it was introduced slightly differently because it's been so influential um, in the ther therapeutic sphere, especially for depression. Now, I should say there are many arguments amongst therapists whether it should be considered the gold standard for depression and other disorders, but it is. That's the reality. So um, that's kind of where current, you know, majority opinion is or majority, you know, that's what the NHS does in the IAPT service for depression. So there are many kind of demonstrations of why it's so commonly used, even if you want to debate whether it should be like as common as it is. And what actually happens and what's so interesting about cognitive behavioral therapy is that an individual patient has say, a set of challenges that they are experiencing. Maybe they have social anxiety. Every time they go to a party, they feel incredibly anxious and it's kind of exacerbated and built up and now they feel that they cannot even leave their house without experiencing those kinds of anxieties about interacting with people. And in a course of CBT, a therapist will work with them both on the thoughts that are leading to those anxieties, what are perhaps the catastrophizing or negative patterns of thinking that are leading to those concerns, as well as encourage often gradually behavioral changes, maybe a behavioral experiment, it's called, where you do something close to what you find very anxious and then report back to the therapist on how it went. And the way this, you might say, is this neuroscience? And in fact, it works by very similar brain processes to the other mental health treatments that I've described. It gets at them in a slightly different way because what CBT is doing is affecting how you learn about the world, what you learn about the world, and also your general beliefs about the world. So that kind of final step of what an antidepressant might be changing is also what CBT is working on, kind of encouraging you to perhaps experience the world in a way that eventually has fewer kind of negative expectations about what will happen in some contexts. And that's something that if you're considering it, you need someone else to do with you, a trained psychotherapist. 
Um, that's a little bit up for a debate. So there have been some uh, studies doing different kinds of psychological therapy online and shown um, reasonable efficacy. So you might need someone else, but they might not have to be in person. And then there's a kind of, you know, a real sort of downstream effect of that. Could that person be a bot? So, you know, some some companies in particular are investing in sort of artificial intelligence techniques for therapy. Um and could that be sort of you teaching yourself? There's some evidence that can be helpful. But ultimately, yes, the most kind of effective trials are done with trained therapists who've often trained for quite a long time to deliver this kind of therapy. And I was so interested that you almost say that the that's teaching you how to think about the world and to interact and to think very carefully about how you interact with the world. And almost the antithesis of that is mindfulness which you then write about which is to say I don't care to try to care uh, less to try not to analyze your thoughts you know not to overthink it as people are always saying to me about various things do you combine the two I know you say in the book you're very honest about how difficult you find mindfulness but people find it very very helpful you know I certainly think it's a really a calming and extraordinary thing to do very simply do you think that people should be both interrogating the way they think about the world and trying not to care so much. Yeah, there probably is some optimal combination. And I certainly know, you know, individual therapists or therapeutic strategies that integrate both and tailor it for particular people and what they might find useful. I think mindfulness is actually such an interesting example of a therapy that works in a slightly different way than CBT, but can still be very, very effective. And there may be different camps of people who not just prefer one over the other, but in fact respond better to one or the other. And I, I think that's another really interesting area for investigation, a little bit like finding, you know, which drug works for you, also which therapy works for you. That would be something very useful to know before you undertake like a 16 session, months long treatment. So does that mean, I mean, as you as you say again, again in the book, everything works for different people. For some people, it might be um, psychocybin. For some people, it might be having a glass of wine. For some people, it might be CBT. For some people, it might be this. I mean, is the only way at the moment to tell, to experiment a bit with those, each one or... Well, I'm, I think what many people do pragmatically is experiment with different techniques to improve their mental health. But I also think there is a responsibility on scientists, on kind of clinician scientists, people working in my space, to really push forward our ability to identify which treatments work for which people. And there certainly are examples around the world of really innovative labs and treatments trying to match people with the right treatment. And I think that is an area we're going to see a lot of improvement in, in the future. And one suggestion, you know, maybe like a little bit of a more controversial suggestion I make in the book is that something that could be helpful to that end is identifying mechanisms that are disrupted in individual people. This could be maybe with a computer task, with a mobile phone, that could be with a bunch of questionnaires, many different ways, a blood test, a brain scan, so many ways to measure underlying processes. But in my view, those processes are more likely to be able to pair with an individual treatment that we know targets those, rather than something like a diagnosis of depression, which is a very, very general descriptor where two people with entirely different sets of symptoms might both meet criteria for that diagnosis. Useful for them to know, useful for a clinician, but actually for treatment, we might need to go beneath the surface and find out what what is driving that person's depression or that person's phobia or that person's anxiety in order to work out what the right treatment for them is. And talking of treatments, I was very surprised to read or saddened in a way, just the unbelievable power of public perception. Uh, when you write about ECT, which I'm sure many people will, will know of, and I think is far more rarely used as a treatment. And you say it is uh, without doubt, the most effective treatment for depression. But the reason that we see it used less and less dis despite that is because of public perception. I think one professional uh, doctor said to you that science has just lost the public battle with ECT. So is that really more and more a thing of the past? 
Yeah, I was I was a bit sad to learn that as well because like you I I had a a misconception about ECT when I first started working in this field. And I don't want to say that that's for no reason. There is a really good reason why we all have a misconception about ECT because the kind of, you know, really really early stages of this work were done sometimes, you know, without people's consent, often in very different contexts to very different degrees um, than it has been done in the recent past. And in fact, ECT is still a treatment that's used and very effectively used. Um, As I say in the book, it is the most effective treatment for very severe depression. So this is people who haven't responded um, to anything else. And the reason you would want to use it on that group is because there can be serious side effects that are important to know about, for example, memory loss, particularly around the time of treatment. Although the the kind of robust studies show that this lessens as soon as you get a few weeks away from treatment and you can even see sort of you know benefits compared to before treatment because depression itself often comes with serious memory um, impairments. So Overall, I think the weight of the evidence is in favor of ECT for people with very severe depression, but I do certainly have an understanding for why people are so resistant to that idea, even people who've individually, personally had very negative experiences of ECT. I totally sympathize with the idea that they they feel that they shouldn't have had it. This is a, a personal experience. That, that just maybe doesn't line up exactly with the kind of group experience of the evidence, but is still very important to listen to. So yeah, so that's why I wanted to discuss ECT in the book. It was a kind of very, hmm, it's not a topic my lab researches because almost no labs that I know of in neuroscience research ECT. I don't know funding bodies handing out money to research ECT. Instead, I think many people have turned to other forms of brain stimulation, as the the clinician that I described in that anecdote suggested, and as my lab has worked on since, um, kind of other forms of brain stimulation. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And those are things, do you think, that we should look forward to being more part, and I say look forward, not necessarily with excitement or whatever it might be, but would we anticipate them being more available to people? Yes. So that is certainly my scientific perspective, that some brain stimulation treatments should be more available to people based on their effectiveness. And this is in particular something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which you get for several sessions over the course of a few weeks, and then it often lasts for a bit longer. It's an effective treatment for major depression and in trials and with some success for other conditions as well. And it is really quite safe and can be used for more mild to moderate depression. It doesn't kind of require the level of severity of ECT. Um, And there are other forms of brain stimulation that are in development as well, but that's the one that I think there's the kind of strongest clinical evidence for. And there already are a couple clinics in the UK, but it, it is still nascent. So at the beginning, I asked you about whether this book was for everyone. And you said that people who don't necessarily consider themselves to have to be severely struggling with mental health are questioning how to improve their mental health or to have the best possible mental health. And there are lots of things people are led to believe can help with that. You call this part of the book, Is There a Mentally Healthy Lifestyle? Um, We don't have a huge amount of time left, but I feel like you, you, you do sum it up very, very brilliantly. So let's take the three things and, and get your reaction to uh, how much they can help. Um, Exercise. Very helpful for many people. But evidence suggests that for a small proportion, maybe not helpful to increase your exercise. And diet. Now, this is a really fascinating part of the book. I think it comes back a lot to what I was saying at the beginning about um, not forgetting about how much pleasure is important to mental health and how we mustn't assume that diets or certain diets can help with mental health. And we should be more wary of what restriction uh, can do to people's mental health. 
Yes, I'm more cautious on dieting for that reason. I think sometimes even diets purportedly to help someone's health can lead to really dysfunctional eating behaviors that can be incredibly detrimental to some people's mental health. So I'm more cautious about diet. I think also stay tuned. There may well be certain things that are helpful. And I do talk in the book about how if you have particular nutritional deficiencies, then that's the exception that makes the rule. So then diet can actually be quite helpful. But for the most part, you know, enhancing certain foods, cutting out certain foods, will it help your mental health? The evidence is not strong there. I'm just going to quote your quote, which I thought was was a really um, great, how you sum it up at the end. You say, unsurprisingly, for anything you might try, it's been shown again and again that when you're doing for example, restrictive dieting or excessive exercise, if it's making you less happy overall, this is much worse for for your well-being uh, than your unhealthy diet was in the first place. Uh, It is not worth suffering through any of this. If you hate it, the harm would outweigh any potential benefit. But where you seem unequivocal uh, is sleep. I do think the evidence is quite strong for sleep. It's not a cure-all and it's also not a kind of not the recipe is not the same for everyone different people need different amounts of sleep it might help some people and not others etc the same message overall but i i certainly um find the evidence that poor sleep worsens mental health and better sleep helps mental health more compelling with one very very cool exception that nobody seems to know about which is a very old finding but very true in a large group of people with depression not everyone if you do acute sleep deprivation for a night or so you can sometimes cause an immediate remission of symptoms Um, it's not necessarily prolonged but it can be a really interesting kind of temporary boost of mood and I've heard of people using it for example to to kind of kick off a therapeutic session because that person with depression has temporary relief from their symptoms which is just miraculous if you've been experiencing it for a long time so um, just an interesting kind of fact about sleep that can sometimes happen yeah fascinating but generally you sleep is immensely important of course many people will know and say to you that it's a vicious circle because if you are feeling anxious if you are feeling depressed you have trouble sleeping and if you have trouble sleeping uh, it leads to increased anxiety and feelings of yes I think the direction of causality is actually very confusing with um with sleep so it's the association is very clear very strong but which way it's working both ways yeah it's um unclear And presumably that is the problem with so much of this, the direction of causality, because, for example, if you suffer from something that makes you physically uncomfortable, you become increasingly anxious, you become increasingly anxious, you become increasingly and physically uncomfortable. And that is really the problem with so much of this, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I really want to talk about, you know, both directions in my book, just the fact that it's not as clear cut as you do one thing, your mental health improves shouldn't be depressing. It's actually really, really important to understand the kind of dual reinforcement nature of so many of these processes that it can be self-reinforcing in a good way and in a bad way, depending on, you know, what exactly is going on. Yes. And and just to end where, where you end with a fascinating look at the changing nature of mental health and actually just talking about that both ways, You talk about long COVID, which I thought was fascinating because you you say that there's this popular conception. I think we've just talked about this more broadly, that if your disorder is accompanied by physical changes, and I'm quoting you because these are your words, uh, in the body or brain, it must be real or not all in the mind. And that explains the recategorization that you describe also in the book of dementias as neurological rather than um, psychiatric. And it's often used to argue that these conditions like long COVID, your words, are either physical or mental health problems. Um, But it was just so interesting to me to hear you say a category of illness confined to the mind that doesn't involve a biological change. That doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. So I think... It is a false debate to argue that a condition that we don't fully understand is in the mind or not. I think every piece of evidence suggests that conditions we think of as mental health conditions have 
underlying physical processes driving them because that's what's driving our mental experience of the world. Equally, I think it's also kind of false to classify something as entirely physical and say it doesn't involve the same sort of mental processes. Um, And that's why I I suggest that although we sometimes move disorders between the category of neurology and psychiatry or between other categories, it's probably not super helpful because many of these disorders involve kind of co-occurring processes, processes that are common to disorders we think of as neurological, like Parkinson's disease, but also disorders we think of as psychological, like depression. Yeah, and okay, I must move to audience questions. But your take very quickly on long COVID, which I think is a fascinating one, and you say you could be proved wrong, but... Yeah, I'm very interested in long COVID um, kind of as a as a phenomenon. I think it's probably been labelled perhaps a bit too quickly because it may represent a number of different conditions that can occur after someone experiences COVID. So I think that's probably another level on which sort of the one category or the other debate is a bit wrong because I think it could represent um, several different ongoing all physical though processes. Um, yeah. Okay, right. Audience questions. Uh, sorry, there is you. You you have packed so much um, to talk about into your books. So it's very hard to stop asking you questions, but I have. Um, so uh, Laura says, and I think this is a really interesting question. I was thinking about this in terms of uh, the placebo effect because I was thinking actually there are a lot of people who aren't who think they aren't convinced about the efficacy of medicine so would it not work as well in eastern cultures because perhaps in western cultures there's a strong belief that the drugs work but not so much in eastern medicine and and perhaps perhaps less and less in western society now is that changing the efficacy of medicines I think that hasn't been tested to my knowledge, but I would be really interested to see that study. So the idea is that your lifelong experiences are driving the placebo effect. So I agree that in a different culture or with a shifting culture, that could alter the size of the placebo effect. And I think there is evidence of the size changing over time, but I believe at least in the case of anxiety disorders, it's actually increasing over time. I don't know about the cross-cultural uh, effect, but it would be really fascinating to find out. And my hypothesis would be the same as yours, that if you've grown up thinking something else might be the better route towards feeling better, then that would be the thing with the strongest placebo effect. Well, it's really interesting, I suppose, in affecting the discussions around medicine and how important perhaps it is, um, you know, not to talk things down or up before we know. Um, I think Charles is talking about, and Charles, please tell me if I'm wrong, but antidepressants, I think that's when you asked this question. And he says, I understand the success rate is 40%. Is that right? Yes, it depends on the study you look at. I wouldn't say 40% is necessarily wrong. I think anything between 40 and 60 is a fair estimate. It depends if you mean that kind of overall efficacy, including placebo or versus placebo. So it's sort of, it's, you know, gets a bit nitty, but I, I wouldn't, if someone said 40, I would say, yeah. Fine. Okay, and we we talked about food. We talked about the microbiome, and we and you said, um, you know, that you don't think yet there's enough evidence of a brain diet, which is becoming more and more thought that there that there could be. But somebody asked about the poor Western diet, I suppose. So processed foods, high sugar, high carbs. Do you think that there's evidence that that has an impact on brain activity and mental health? I'm aware of some ongoing studies about the effect of certain kind of processed food, ultra-processed food ingredients um, on mental health and brain function. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there were very specific aspects of that that did affect mental function. But overall, kind of saying all ultra-processed food has this particular effect on the brain, I think that work is not has not been done. So I think it's more likely to be a lot more specific than the way we're thinking about it right now. Okay, fascinating. And Anya says, what do you think about the vagus nerve stimulation? I think vagus nerve stimulation is really interesting because it's been going on for a long time. It's, it's approved for a for depression treatment in the US even. And yet, actually, 
even over time, a relatively small number of patients have received it. I think you can sometimes get voice changes, so there are other sort of side effects that maybe people avoid it for that reason. But maybe the most interesting thing about it from my perspective is that we don't entirely understand how it works. And so for that reason, I think um, vagus nerve stimulation is a kind of one to watch for the future. I'll give you one cool thing that some of my, um, some of the other labs that I collaborate with in the world are doing. They do auricular vagus nerve stimulation, which is we have a projection of it in our ear. So one way to access it is by stimulating the vagus nerve via the ear. And initially I was like, what, you know, no way is this going to work. But I've seen really convincing evidence that it activates the same kind of brain regions as actually targeting the vagus nerve surgically. And I think Isabel asks a question I think we've covered, but I guess it's good to ask it sort of directly, more directly as she does, which is, would you say then that positive thinking has effective placebo effects on physical conditions? Yes, I guess I would say it depends what you mean by positive thinking. So I'm a little bit cautious in my book that I don't think the solution is sort of just think more positively. But that's partially because I think most of us don't really have that degree of control over our thoughts. We can we can try, but in fact, it's quite difficult. So that's sort of what therapy might be for, that's what antidepressants might be for, and so on. But I think thinking of it as the kind of end point, if you can do something that could then move your thoughts in that more positive direction, then I think I would say yes. Okay. And lastly, I think, again, we, we did discuss this, but Kevin um, asks about transcranial direct current stimulation. Perhaps it's a different um, than what you were describing in your experiments. Um, yes. So transcranial direct current stimulation is another way of stimulating the brain. And it's a kind of milder electrical current that's delivered also from the outside of the head in a kind of similar approach. So you often do it for a few days, and then you hope it has these kind of longer lasting effects. Now, I think the evidence for TDCS, which is a topic I've run trials in that area before, is more mixed than for the other type of brain stimulation. There is some evidence that it works in some people, but it's not as strong or as general as the evidence for transcranial magnetic stimulation. That could be a physics problem. We might just need to kind of improve our engineering to target areas a bit better. It could also be a similar problem to what I've described before. So some of my work is about selecting the right patients for that treatment, which I think there might be ways of doing. I'm just going to end by asking something you talk about in your last chapter about the changing nature of mental health. With your take on the idea that we are in this mental health crisis, and particularly when it comes to the young and children who are seemingly in a lot of children dropping out of school, not being able to go to school. There's a, there's, there, there is a narrative, and I think the statistics to back it up, that there is a crisis of mental health, particularly amongst children. Do you think that that's true, or are there other factors that are dictating that narrative? I think it is and it isn't true. So the numbers of diagnoses of mental health conditions are skyrocketing. That's often what's cited, and particularly in young people. But some studies that use the exact same measures, so say symptom measures or measures of distress, over time show a much milder increase. So we see this much more dramatic increase in the labels, in the diagnoses. And that could be kind of a good thing. It means people have access to services where they can get these diagnoses. It means people are aware that when they're distressed, it might not just be distressed, it might be, it might not just be distress, it might be something that's treatable, it might be a condition. It might also be a kind of increased propensity to label distress with um, diagnoses for better or worse. So there, you know, there's a kind of discussion, separate discussion to be had about that. But I do think there are increasing rates of mental health diagnoses. There's a, a milder but still existing increasing rates of kind of distress and mental health symptoms. But the underlying causes of that are quite complex. Okay. I'm going to let you go. But also, of course, people can read about the fascinating way in which the internet perhaps spreads um, ideas about mental health too. Uh, there's too much in your book. That is your fault. You'll have to come back for take two. Um, but hugest thanks. I think everyone who um, has signed in will agree that there's just so much 
fascinating information in here and I think also feel safer about the future if people like you are in charge of the experiments and, and where we're going so thank you very very much um, indeed for, uh, for this uh, half hour and I should say an hour and I should say to people uh, who have signed in to watch this if you think think it would benefit anyone else um, of course they can download the video from tomorrow if they're how to plus but the podcast will be available uh, in a few weeks perhaps a month at most and so th- and that will be available to anyone to download so uh, if you think there are people who would benefit from it then um, you can let them know uh, thank you very much indeed it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening this episode of the podcast starred Camilla Nord and was presented by Hannah McInnes the show is made by me Vas Christodoulou and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Till next time, thanks for listening.